If you've got your Bibles, open up Acts chapter 16, um, and we'll get going this morning. As you are turning there, uh, one of my heroes um, who needs very little introduction if you've been around for a while, um, John Piper, uh, in talking about the book of Acts, he said that the book of Acts is a constant indictment to mere maintenance mode Christianity. The book of Acts that we're taking our time to study for the most part of this year, all 28 chapters, uh, the book of Acts is an indictment to mere maintenance mode Christianity. And when he is talking about maintenance mode Christianity, what he is talking to is this sense that what we have attained by God's grace we now need to focus all of our efforts on preserving, that there's this inherent inertia that begins to happen in the soul of an individual and in the soul of a a church, in the soul of a community of believers that experiences the grace of God and tastes the grace of God and the transforming power of, of God in their life. And then their attention turns not towards the forward progress of that same grace to those who have not yet believed, but to the maintenance of that grace, to making sure they hold on to whatever it is they've tasted of as, as churches begin to, to see transformation take place in people's lives. And if God so chooses by his grace to add numbers to them, churches tend to take this maintenance approach to what they're doing and begin to focus all of their efforts and all of their intention and all of their resources and all of their energy into making sure that what has happened doesn't go away. That, that what they see right here and right now is what remains tomorrow. And, and the focus on the continuing of the gospel forward through them while it works itself out in them becomes a secondary issue. And a primary issue always implicitly, never explicitly, always implicitly, is that we need to do whatever we can to hold on to what we've got. You know, if you, if you think about a, a, a conference you've been to or if you grew up in the church, that, that junior high camp experience at the end of the week when everything comes together and crescendos, the, the, the thing that you know when you leave, the thing you don't want to happen is that at some point you're going to come back down from that mountain and, and you're going to experience real life again and you hope that what you feel and what you've experienced can just stay forever and that's what begins to happen to churches. They, they get into this idea of what's called maintenance mode Christianity and essentially the Christianity, their, their faith, their their viability with the gospel as it's lived out in their life essentially becomes a hobby. Their, their faith becomes a hobby. It becomes just another thing that gets added into their life along with all the other things that they experience in their life and they do what they can to just preserve what they've experienced over here when it comes to their faith. And Christianity is a horrible hobby. Really, it is a horrible hobby. If it is simply a hobby to you, if it is simply a hobby for you, please see me afterwards because I've got a list of better hobbies. I mean, really, seriously, it was never meant to be a hobby. And if we understand it as a hobby, we're missing the point of what God has done on our behalf. And ultimately, we're wasting our days and we're wasting our breath. And Piper said the book of Acts is an indictment to this very understanding of Christianity, and he went on to say that more and more, I believe that this book, he's talking about Acts, is in the New Testament to prevent the church from coasting to a standstill and entering into a maintenance mode, and listen to this, with all of their inner wheels working, but going nowhere. Nowhere into new people groups, and nowhere into new ventures, and nowhere into new exploits for the kingdom. 
all of the inner wheels working, but going nowhere. I don't know about you, but I, I don't want maintenance mode Christianity. I don't want to wake up 20 years down the road and realize that I've spent my time and I've spent my energies making sure that all the wheels keep working but never really going anywhere. I don't want to wake up one day and realize that my understanding of the gospel and my experience of God's grace has produced a life that looks a lot like a treadmill, just running and running and running, the wheels going and the noises going, but the scenery never changing and you never actually getting anywhere. Just a lot of energy to make sure that nothing ever really changes. I don't want maintenance mode. I want life. I want passion. I want vitality. I want energy. I want new exploits for the gospel in places and in people who have never heard or experienced the grace of God in Christ. And that's why we're taking our time for the better part of this year on no set agenda, just so you know, lay the cards out on the table, to go through the book of Acts. I mean, we have a, a measure, if we're really honest, of what looks like success in the eyes of the American church world. I mean, if you're really honest, in, in the way that most people view success or failure in, in relation to a, a church, and in the three years, and it'll be three years in May since we had our first service in, in, on Sunday morning in Holton Elementary, we have experienced a, a measure of success. And if we're not careful and if we're not intentional, if we're not aware, and if we're not honest, we will run headlong into the inertia that tends to cripple the souls of individuals and cripple the vitality of churches just like this one. And we'll find ourselves waking up 20 years down the road, having lived for 20 plus years in a maintenance mode version of Christianity, making sure that all the wheels keep spinning so that what you see and what you experience doesn't go away. And when we look back, there will be no new ventures for the gospel No new risks or sacrifices for the sake of the kingdom. No real experience of the depth and life and vitality and passion that's inherent in the ongoing work of the Spirit. And so instead of settling for maintenance mode Christianity, what if we corporately and what if you individually began to actually believe, if you actually dared to believe that God's purposes and empowered by God's Spirit and work themselves out through God's people? What if you actually believe that his purposes, empowered by his spirit, worked out through his people, could never really be stopped? I mean, what if you actually began to believe that? If God's purposes, empowered by his spirit, began to work itself out in your life, come what may, his glory would be achieved and your greatest good would be experienced. What if we actually believed that individually and corporately? What would the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years look like? And what if you individually and what if we corporately bellied up to the table across from God and laid it all out and said, here it is, my life, take whatever you want, do whatever you want, that your good and your glory and my good would be achieved. I mean, what if you gave God a true blank check for your life and let him write it however he wanted to? What if we did that corporately as a church? What would the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years look like? The book of Acts is an indictment 
to the maintenance mode understanding of Christianity, and that's why we're going through it. So I'm going to pray for us this morning as we dive into Acts chapter 13 on what in a couple of weeks will take us through Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 14. And this is my prayer for myself and for us as we continue through this, that we would not be happy with and we would not settle for a a maintenance understanding of our faith. So let's pray because we're going to need his spirit to help us with this. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, and that it is empowered by your spirit and capable of dividing our thoughts and our intention. It's able to divide all the way down to our motivations. And so I ask this morning, Lord, that you would use your word as it's read and then explained through my words, empowered by your spirit to do what only you can do, to divide down to the depths of thought and intention and motivation. And you would help us to see where in our lives and in our hearts we have settled for less than a deep understanding of your grace and power of your gospel and where individually and corporately we tend to settle for something less than the fullness of life and experience. And help us to be a people that want passion, that want you, that want to see new ventures and, or new successes for your kingdom. We ask this in the name of your son, who died to make this a reality on our behalf. Amen. Can you hear the squeaking on this thing, picking up in my microphone? Is it driving you as crazy as it's driving me? It's like an Edgar Allan Poe story. You know, it's this thing going on down here on the floor. It's driving me nuts. But um, if Acts, the book, is an indictment on maintenance mode Christianity, then the church in Antioch is the poster child of that indictment. Uh, The church in Antioch is where the focus of the book of Acts is going to find its central reality here in the coming weeks. We've talked about it a couple weeks ago for the formation of the church in Antioch. And now the central focus on God's movement through the church is going to shift over to this church in Antioch. So it's going to be the poster child for the indictment on the maintenance mode understanding of Christianity. And for the next two weeks... We're going to spend our time looking at this church in Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 14 at at what will become what some of you may know as Paul's first missionary journeys out of this church. And I want you to understand from the very beginning that the importance of this church, the importance of what happens in this local church cannot be overstated. I mean, there's simply no way to overstate what God in his grace and empowered by his spirit chose to do in the life of this one local church. Through God's spirit, this local church, in obedience to God's command, as we'll see in just a minute, was used by God to transform the rest of the world. It had an impact on not only church history, but world history that has never been matched. And in one sense, I want you to take great excitement from that, because God chose to use a local church to transform the world. God chose to use a local church, probably not a whole lot different than this one. Probably wasn't a whole lot older than this one to transform the the rest of the world. If God had not done what he did through this church, what is it, I think 13 or 17? Let Let me look at 13 of the New Testament books would have never been written. Paul's trips to places like Rome and Greece and Asia Minor and Spain, they would have never happened. 
the spread of the gospel to places that had never heard the gospel before outside the borders of this little Mediterranean area would have never happened. And that progress would not have moved forward to the place where centuries later, like right now, some billion, maybe 1.3, 1.2 billion witnesses of the gospel in nearly every country on the face of this earth wouldn't be the same. So you can't overstate the impact of what God chose to do for the life of this one local church. And so I think it's important that as we read through the book of Acts that we pay careful attention to what lessons we can glean from the life of this local church. This church that was able to avoid the maintenance mode sense of Christianity, to avoid the inertia that inevitably begins to set in as things begin to change and and take root in the life of a local church. So I'm going to tell you exactly what we're going to do, and we're going to do it for the next two weeks. We're just going to read Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 14, and I'm just going to pull out observations and lessons when it comes to killing the idea of maintenance mode Christianity. And we're just going to do that for the next two weeks. And I'm going to watch the clock, and when we get to a place to stop this week, I'm going to stop. And we're going to pick it right back up next week so you know exactly what we're going to do. All right? Does that sound fair? I'm going to trick you from the very beginning. So as I was praying this morning and, and kind of finalizing what we were, what we were doing, I, I began to think, well, we actually have to go backwards a, a few verses if we're going to get the full picture of how this church was able to not only avoid by God's grace this idea of maintenance mode Christianity, but what a lesson that we can take from this church if we individually and corporately are going to find ourselves avoiding or better yet killing this idea of maintenance mode Christianity. So it's not going to come up on the screen because I didn't tell anybody. But if you've got your Bibles, it starts in Acts chapter 11, verse 27. And they're going to flip over to 12, and, and I'll read it for you so you can follow along. The first lesson on killing maintenance mode Christianity is that we as individuals and then we corporately as a church have to make sacrifice a priority. Sacrifice has got to become a priority if we're going to avoid maintenance mode Christianity. Acts eleven twenty seven says, In these days prophets came from Jerusalem, to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up before and foretold that the, by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And now this took place in the days of Claudius. And so the disciples determined, and this is the church in Antioch, shortly after they were formed, they determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And then if you go over to Acts chapter 12, verse 25, last verse in Acts chapter 12, you see that Barnabas and Saul then returned from Jerusalem, having done what they were sent out to do to take the relief, the the funds that were raised by this new church in Antioch back to Judea. They returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service and they brought back with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now the first thing we've got to see when we look at this church and if we're going to learn the lessons of this church and what it means to avoid or kill maintenance mode Christianity is that nothing shakes maintenance mode. Nothing rattles the cage of the maintenance mode like sacrifice. Sacrifice rattles the cage of maintenance mode like a few other things. Because in maintenance mode, your focus becomes holding on to what you've attained. It becomes holding on to the measure of health or the measure of success or the measure of maturity that you see right in front of you. You've got to hold on to it. You don't want to lose it. You don't want to let it go. You don't know what's going to happen if you if you let it go. And so if you're going to avoid that or put death to it, then sacrifice has got to be a priority. And this church in Antioch, not unlike this church right here, at this point, probably only three, maybe four years old. They did not look around at what God was doing in their midst, 
recognize the fruitfulness of God's presence and God's power, and then say, by any means necessary, let's hold on to it. Let's hold on to it. Instead, they got word that their brothers in Jerusalem, back in Judea, were experiencing or expecting or anticipating a famine that would come. And here's what they did. They said, well, we look around and we've got some people and we've got some money and we've got some goods, but you know what? We're going to need them to keep forwarding what God's doing here. I mean, if we get rid of these things, what's actually going to happen here? Instead, for the sake of the gospel and the strength of the church, they looked around and said, what do we have? How, how can we help? What can we do? And they let go of precious resources that could have been used to strengthen the church that they were in, in the city that they were in, and the people that they were around. They, they sent those resources back to a church, to a people they had never even met, that they had nothing in common with outside of Jesus. I mean, there was no ethnic commonality, no economic commonality, no cultural commonality between the church in Antioch and the church in Jerusalem. The commonality that they had was the gospel. And this church looked around at the situation and said, what can we do? And let's identify what we've got. And let's identify what they need. And let's see how we can help meet that need. Making sacrifice a priority, and we'll see it again in a different way in just a few minutes is a primary lesson that we've got to learn if we're going to kill or put to death this idea of maintenance mode Christianity in our life and in our church. And I start here not only because it's important, but because we have this very opportunity in front of us right now. Right now, we have an opportunity to do the very thing the church in Antioch did, to experience the joy of sacrifice for the sake of the gospel and the strength of God's church. I mean, many of you may know or may remember that Back in November, I was supposed to spend a few weeks in Japan working with a local church there who has who have developed and cultivated a church planting movement throughout Japan. They've planted other indigenous churches throughout Japan and are seeking to plant churches in, in center city, Tokyo. And I was supposed to go there before whatever mysterious leprous ailment came upon my mouth and my throat and I, I couldn't speak and ended up having to go to the hospital. And I, and I wasn't able to actually go to Japan, but I've still got this ticket sitting in my account to this country, and unless you have not turned on your television, your computer, your radio, you've avoided newspapers, unless somehow you've managed to hole up in a cave or a monastery somewhere for the past couple of weeks, you're undoubtedly aware of what is going on right now over the nation of Japan. I mean, you, you've got to be aware of the devastation that has taken root in the northern part of that country, from the earthquakes to the tsunamis to now to the near nuclear disaster like, like our world has probably never seen before, potentially. There is untold devastation and destruction in that nation right now. And we have an opportunity. Redemption Hill Church, the church at large, but I'm talking to us, have an opportunity right now to sacrifice on behalf of the gospel and on behalf of strengthening God's church in a place that some of you will probably never go to. People you will probably never meet who outside of Jesus Christ you have probably very little in common with, but who right now are experiencing the devastation that has come with what has rocked and shaken their country. We have an opportunity actually to sacrifice here for the sake of what God is doing somewhere else in this world, for the forward progress of the gospel and the strengthening of his church. Now, I don't know if you remember in Japan, I mean in November when we talked about this, but Japan is roughly half of 1% reached with the gospel. For all of their wealth, for all of their economic and modern development and technology, they remain one of the world's most unreached peoples. 
And right now, when you watch the news and you read newspaper reports and you turn on the internet and you hear the devastation and the the death tolls and you see the pictures, those are not just people who have lost their life. Those are people who are spending eternity apart from God. And this is an opportunity for the church to strengthen the work in a place where the gospel has yet to be declared in an imminent and transformational way through people who are there. And not just faceless, anonymous, monetary support. God has been gracious to us in some sense, like this church in Antioch, where the only commonality they had with Jerusalem was Jesus and Barnabas. The only real commonality we have between Redemption Hill and the church in Japan is Jesus and the father of some of our own Redemption Hill members. Martha Robinson and Hannah Iverson's father is the one who went to Japan some 20 plus years ago and began to do the hard work of reaching people with the gospel. And God poured out his grace and his spirit on that work and a church began to develop and he began to train local Japanese men in the ministry. And from that church, they've planted other churches throughout Japan. And from that church and that work, other denominations and other groups have joined with them to now they have a church planting movement in that country. And we have the opportunity to sacrifice here to help support what God is doing there as they meet the needs of their people in Japan and see doors open up for a continued expansion of the gospel in places in that country where the gospel had not been named before. We have an opportunity to do this. And we have a choice We can settle in for maintaining what God has given us and what God has done here and and look at the things that God has given us and go, well, they're better used for what we want to accomplish here. Or we can look at what God has given us and look at the opportunities ahead at his gospel going forward in another place and say, how can we take those resources and help strengthen what he's doing? And so in the coming weeks, we are going to open up an offering And we're going to ask you to pray, and we're just going to ask you to give. And 100% of those funds are going to be set aside to go to churches in Japan that are helping to meet the needs of Japanese people and plant new churches in the midst of this devastation and struggle. 100%. To faces, and to people, and to churches. I haven't actually checked with Ryan. I should probably check with Ryan. But hopefully there's a way we can actually even turn on and giving online, a designated fund on that. And you can just give through the computer online to a fund that we're setting aside to give to Japan. So uh, either today as you pray and you want to give and give later on when we give, if you pray this week and want to give online, you can give. We'll take the money up next week as you give. We'll continue to take the money as you continue to be led to give because the needs are going to be endless there. But we have an opportunity to put to death the idea of maintenance in our souls and in our church as we sacrifice for the good of the gospel and the strength of this church in, in Japan. And the question is, what, what are we going to do? What, what choice are we actually going to make? And so I pray along with you that, that God would compel us and to move us to sacrifice for the sake of what he's doing. And in the weeks to come, we'll continue to clarify for you and, and, and tell you how that money is going and where it's going as we find the most expedient way to get the money into the hands of churches on the ground doing that work. So join us in that. Let's pray that as an individual, as a people, we make decisions that that honor God and, and strengthen his church. So now, Acts chapter 13. Lesson number two on killing the maintenance mode understanding of Christianity. You gotta make room for diversity. You gotta make room for 
diversity. Look at verse 1. Now, as they're back in Antioch, now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and there were teachers. There was Barnabas, there was Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. In this one verse, you get a whole horde of differences of diversity, of differences in background, of differences in ethnicity, of differences in economics. Barnabas was from Cyprus. Simeon was from Africa. Lucius most likely was from North Africa. Menaean was from probably Galilee. He was raised, some of your Bibles say, with Herod the Tetrarch. So he was raised in the royal family with influence and with money. And then you've got Saul, who was from Tarsus, who was the persecutor of the church. You've got men from Africa. You've got men from Asia Minor. You've got men from North Africa. You've got men from Galilee. You've got men from Tarsus. You've got men from all other places in this church who have now gathered together by God's grace. You have got an unbelievably diverse church. And you've got to make room for that. But what we see actually happening by God's grace was not an intentional effort on the part of the church in Antioch to be a diverse church. They didn't put signs out that said the church in Antioch where diversity reigns or they didn't have a diversity mission initiative. They just preached the gospel. They just believed the gospel. They just believed that common to all men was a sin before a holy God and common to all men for salvation and rescue was his son Jesus on whom they must believe. It didn't matter where they came from. Their only hope for salvation and redemption and rescue and cleansing was one man, Jesus Christ, and they had believed that. And God had brought them together by his spirit, and in this church was an unbelievably diverse place. And you can imagine the struggles that grew in the midst of such diversity as the gospel began to work itself out through the different cultures, through the different experiences, through the different ideas and, and, and aspects of wisdom that each one brought with them from their background. From low economic standing to high economic standing, it was all here in this church. It was unbelievably diverse, and it reflected the diversity of their city. I mean, what you see in the church in Antioch is a reflection of the city of Antioch. It actually looked like the city. The gospel was, was beginning to take root in all parts of the city. And God was drawing men and women from all places together in this church, and they were making room for it. And if we're going to put to death the idea of a preservation mindset and a maintenance mode understanding of Christianity, we're going to have to actually make room for diversity. And with diversity comes challenge. And with diversity come difficult decisions. And with diversity comes a difference of preference and a difference of opinion. And that kind of thing is scary to the maintenance mode because in maintenance mode, you know what you think works. You know what worked in the past and you know what got you here, so anything that's contrary to that or comes from a different angle than that, there's a place down the street for you. If we're going to put to death this idea of maintenance mode, we're going to have to make room for diversity and not just on a cultural or economic scale, but even on a gifting scale. I mean, Luke makes note here, just quick, I mean, there, were, there were prophets and, and there were teachers. And those are just the two he noted. I mean, you can bet that as the Spirit gives gifts to all men, that Paul will go on later to say to the church in Corinth, as God has given gifts to all the people in this church, there were more than just prophets and teachers there. And when you know, when you get around people of a different gifting and you've got the, the, God, the prophetic guys who, who love the word and who want to preach the word and who want to speak the word and it better find its way in this word. And if it doesn't find its way in this word, don't tell me about it. 
I want to get up and open this word and, and explain the word. And that's what they're all about with these guys who are a little more pastoral. Who want to see everybody love each other and see the gospel work itself out. As you get people of different gifting brought together, there's different emphasis and different passions and creates different challenges. The church in Antioch made room for all the different gifts. And I'll say this in the midst of this, because this is important for us. If we're going to put to death this idea of preservation and, and move forward in the fullness of what the gospel does in and through a people, we're going to have to understand the difference between a command of God and the calling of God. We've talked about it before in the past, but the commands of God are universal across all of God's people. God's command to make disciples of all people, teaching them all that he had taught us and baptizing them, that's a command that sits across all of God's people. All of us are responsible to obey that command. Just like all the men in here are responsible to love their wives the way that Christ has loved the church, that is a command. You don't need discernment from God about whether or not that's a command for you to obey. You're just supposed to do it. Obedience is what's expected of you. The commands of God are universal. They're not up for our discerning of whether or not we're going to actually do it or not. And what happens in maintenance mode Christianity and what happens in the inertia that sets in over time in churches and in people is we begin to look at the commands of God and we begin to think that they're callings that we can choose to opt in of or opt out of. I'm not called to make a disciple of other people. That's just not the way God called me. Well, it's not a calling. It's a command of which you're responsible to obey. The calling of God is the way in which you particularly work out the commands of God in your life. God has commanded all of his people in the church to be responsible to cultivate the soul of another person to reflect the character of Christ, to make disciples of all people and all nations. The calling of God begins to bring focus to how the obedience to that command works itself out in your life. And our callings are different. Our callings are different, but the commands are the same. Our callings are simply the way we carry out those commands, where we express obedience to those commands. And it's here in the understanding of our calling where discernment actually comes into play. But here's the thing. Each of us is responsible to be obedient to the command. Each of us is responsible to be obedient to the command. And at different times, God may compel different people with a particular passion in the way in which they will fulfill that obedience, in the way in which they'll fulfill that command. And so we'll put people in front of you, like we did a few weeks ago with Rick and Nancy Collins, who, through a process of prayer and discernment and obedience to God and things they felt compelled to do, have sensed a calling to clarify their obedience to make disciples as it, comes, as it works itself out in the prisons in this city. There's a particular way that God has compelled them and a passion that he's given them to be obedient to his command to make disciples. And they're going to go do that in the prisons. But that may not be your calling. And that's okay. And what happens in the, in the maintenance and preservation is we tend to look at the commands of God and maybe the way that we've, we've worked those out in our own particular calling and then place that on other people. 
We can't make room for the difference in the way that God is calling people to work out these commands. We need to have them work it out the way that we work it out because that's what we know and that's what we understand and that's what we want and that's what we can oversee and that's what we can keep control of. That's not the way that God works. He has given the commands to his people and then he's called us to be dependent upon him for discernment and how we work that out. And the way in which we work that out will be different. And the simplest way to understand right now what that calling looks like for you is just look at where he's put you. Just look at where he's put you. What neighborhood has he put you in? What soccer team has he put your kids on? What office do you find yourself working in? God has called you to be obedient to his commands right where you are. And at times, through a process of prayer and discernment, God will put a particular sense of calling and burden on your life. And if a church is going to move past a preservation and a maintenance understanding of the faith into new ventures and into new work for the kingdom, you've got to make room for those differences. And not only make room for those differences, but we've got to actually expect those differences to occur. We've actually got to expect for that to actually happen. Does that make sense? So we've got to make room for diversity. And as we do, what, what keeps this thing from going off the rails and into the weeds is the one thing that just drawn us together in the first place. It's, it's the gospel. It's the grace of God at work in the people of God as they surrender and submit to the word of God empowered by the spirit of God that keeps the church going forward and not running off the rails. It was this people with this unbelievable sense of diversity from background to economics to gifting to calling that were all recognized the fact that before God opened their heart to see his beauty in the face of his son Jesus, they were all headlong headed for an eternity separated from God himself. It was an understanding of the gospel and a surrender to the gospel and an experience of God's grace through the gospel that kept this church on the rails. And it's the same thing that keeps us on the rails. The gospel transcends not only the differences between people, but it transcends the callings as it helps compel us and clarify for us ways in which we're called to be obedient to to his commands. So, second lesson, make room for diversity because the grace of God does not create clones. Legalism creates clones. Grace of God does not create clones. Legalism and self-righteousness and preservation, that creates clones. That inertia is what compels people and churches to think the way that God has worked in their life is the way it should work in everybody's life. The maturity and success looks like this, sounds like this, smells like this, dresses like this, sings like this. Legalism creates those kinds of clones. The grace of God doesn't. So you've got to make room for diversity as God works in his people and works through his people by his spirit as his people are tethered to the gospel, centered on the gospel and moving forward in understanding of his grace. You got to make room for it. Lesson number three, you're going to kill the maintenance mode, the preservation mode of Christianity. You've got to make worship the context for your mission. You've got to make worship the context for your mission. Look at verse 2. Bless you. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, 
the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Verse three, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Now, commentators will go both ways on this, but the setting was probably a lot like this. Most likely this wasn't a particular prayer and fasting initiative in the church in Antioch. This was probably the regular rhythm of their life together. They gathered together corporately, all of God's people together to worship God, to make much of God in the scriptures we understand through praying, through the singing of different songs and and hymns about God and through the reading of his word and the explanation of his word. It was the regular habit of the church to get together and to worship God together just like we're doing right now. And it was the regular habit of the church, especially then and unfortunately to our own indictment, not now, to be fasting together. I mean, Jesus said that while he was on earth, his disciples wouldn't fast because he was here. But it was when he left that then his, then his people would fast. And the reason why we fast, it's not to earn anything from God. It's not to get any brownie points from God so that we can, we can get a little extra measure of grace down the road. It's, it's an expression of our heart's desire that says, I want God, I want him, I want the grace of God, the gospel of God more than I want anything else. More than I want whatever it is that I'm abstaining from, I want God. And the worship of God's people together is another expression of that saying, you are worth all of our joy. You are worth all of our worship. It comes from you and it should go to you. This is just a regular habit of God's people. So they were doing what we're doing right now. As they just gather together to pray, to read God's word, for someone to explain God's word, to sing songs about God and his worth. And they were fasting just like many of us are right now. Many of us are going through this this preparatory season before Easter, fasting from different things each week. And I would ask that if you haven't joined us in that, you join us in that. If you haven't already, don't worry about it. Just jump in with us. And if if you have been, the reason why we're doing it is we're saying together, corporately and then individually, we want something more than we want this meal. We want something more than we want this time with the television. We want something more than we want just buying this thing for us. We want God. We want his glory and his grace to work its way through our life and work its way through our soul and uproot what doesn't need to be there to plant seeds of his grace deeper into our own soul so that a springtime of passion and faith and joy would rise up in our life. We're we're saying together we want something more than whatever it is we're abstaining from each week. And what we want is God. And here's the thing that blew my mind as I was reading this this week. As they were doing the very thing that we're doing right here, being be encouraged by this. I was so encouraged by this. They were doing the very thing that we're doing, gathering in corporate worship, fasting from whatever it was they were fasting from, an expression of desire for God. And in the regular meeting of God's people, the Holy Spirit began to move and compel his direction in that moment for two particular people. And here's what got me this week. That could be happening right now. There was nothing in particular that this church was doing to make what God did through his spirit happen. It was the regular meeting and prayer of God's people. And the spirit showed up. And the spirit compelled the church to see, set apart for me these two guys for the work I've got for them. And right now the spirit could be doing that in different people here. And that began to blow my mind. And what began to blow my mind was that's not the expectation I think we come to church with. 
I don't think we come with the expectation that as we gather together to worship God, to make much of God, as we read his word and as we pray together and as we sing of his greatness together, I don't think we come expecting something like this to happen. And we should. We should. I mean, I don't know why you come week in and week out. Maybe it's this. If it's not this, it should be this. I mean, do you come with the expectation that as you gather with God's people and make much of God and God's word goes forward, empowered by his spirit, that he might actually do something in your life or in the life of someone else here or use you to be a part of compelling his work in the life of someone else? I mean, do you, do you have that anticipation? I mean, if you did, what would actually keep you from being here? I mean, I'm talking to myself in this. I mean, if we began to see that God's spirit works this way through his people and through the regular worship of his church, what would keep us from it? Really? Why would we show up 20 minutes late? Why would we show up two out of every five weeks? I mean, that's more of an indictment than a lot of things, I should say. It's probably more of an expression of a of maintenance or preservation understanding of what we're doing. Not seeing and expecting God to do what God can do in the presence of his people. So if we're going to avoid or kill this idea of maintenance, we, we've got to make worship the context for our mission. We've got to want him more than we want anything else. As a, as a people, as God's people gather And there's a growing and increasing passion in his people for his glory. For his glory to be made known in them and for his glory to be made known through them. There will be a passion in those people for the continuing spread of the gospel. That's what begins to happen here. As a passion for God's glory grows in God's people, a passion for the spread of the gospel through God's people will become evident. And what we see in the very beginning of Acts chapter 13 is that this great mission effort that grew out of this local church, not much like this one, that changed the landscape of world history, grew out of worship. It was birthed by God's spirit in the context of God's people expressing God's worth and expressing a desire for him more than anything else. Worship a sense of passion for who God is and a wanting of him has got to be the context for a mission. Has got to be the seedbed for the forward progress of the gospel through the local church. It's not a strategic planning initiative. As much of an act of worship as that can be, and it can be, an act of dependence upon God for direction, and I think we see that in just a second in this church. But it was a people who wanted God It was a people who wanted God more than they wanted anything else and they fought for that to be a reality in their life. Corporately and individually, it was that people that God's spirit moved in. That should excite you because they're not different than us. There was nothing special about them. We need to have this expectation. We need to ask God to reorient our thinking and our desires and our passion as we behold his greatness together and make much of his greatness together, I believe that we'll be compelled by his spirit to go and speak of his goodness. And that's the forward motion 
of the church. And so this church at Antioch, they, they've got the gospel, they've got the command to make disciples, the command to be witnesses, and in this particular moment of God's spirit, he gives clarity to a particular calling for two men, Barnabas and Saul. So what's the church going to do? What's it going to do? Verse 3, it says, Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. They worshiped some more. They got the clarity on the calling. Now they wanted the clarity on the direction. And they find themselves in prayer and fasting some more. And so I had to ask of myself and I'll ask of you just as we go through this season. What do we want more than God? When you think about your calling to be obedient to God's commands, what do you want more than that obedience? What do you want more than God's glory working itself out in you and through you? Lesson four in killing the preservation idea of Christianity. Make obedience the expected response. Make obedience or surrender the expected response. They had a command to make disciples. God directed the calling of a particular few. And what did they do? They obeyed. They didn't try to negotiate with God. They didn't try to make a deal with God. They sacrificed the very best. I I mean, you can guarantee that when they were praying and they were fasting and they were worshiping and they felt compelled by God's spirit, to set apart Saul and Barnabas for the work that he had called them to do, you can guarantee to the man across that room they could have come up with five other people they would rather send. I mean, there had to be a dozen people in that church they would rather send out of that church than Saul and Barnabas. These were their two best. These were the ones who had nurtured them, the ones who had cared for them, the one who had taught them, the one who had encouraged them. And here God says, set them apart from me, I'm gonna send them out and you may never see them again. And you can bet to the man they wanted to negotiate with God. There was something in them that said, oh, what are we going to do? How are we going to preserve what you've started here? If you send Barnabas and Saul, what's going to happen to the church in Antioch? What are we going to do? But instead, they just obeyed. This is a church who, in worship and in surrender to God, wanting him, they put everything out on the table. Everything was on the table. There was nothing that wasn't on the table. They put it all out there. And they said, whatever you want to do, however you want to do it, do what you have to do for your glory and our good because we believe that those two things are inextricably tied together. Do it, take it, and God did. He took Saul and he took Barnabas. And the question is, are are we willing to do that? Are we willing to lay it all out on the table? Are we willing to put our life out there on the table and say to God, do whatever you want to do. Blank check, God. Write it however you want for your glory because I believe that my greatest good is tied up in that. Do what you want with me. And when he does, are you going to obey? If you are going to put to death the idea of preservation in your own soul and in the church, you've got to make obedience the expected response to God's movement in your life and in your heart. What what is it that he can't touch? 
I mean, when I say, will you put it all out there on the table? Are you willing to lay it out there and say, do what you will? What I want is your glory. What I want is you. Because I believe in that I will experience the greatest good that you could ever desire. And you will receive the greatest glory through my life. Take it and do what you will. What is it in the back of your mind that you go, but ah, just not that. We've all got it. Are you willing to put it out there? Are you willing to put it out there? And when you do, will you obey? Will you obey? We're going to put to death this idea of maintenance. And we've got to be willing to obey God's spirit when he leads. The last lesson, I'm going to end with this. Lesson five in killing preservation. Let God lead the mission and let the church confirm what God's called. I just want you to notice in these verses God's role and what goes on here. It was God who defined. It was God who commanded. It was God who empowered. It it was then God who called. And now it's God who sends. Verse four says, so now Barnabas and Saul being sent out by the Holy Spirit. God is after the best interests of his glory. And when we believe that we can let go of whatever it is that we're trying to preserve, of whatever it is that we're trying to hold on to, when we can believe that God is after what is best for his glory and that our greatest good and joy in this life is tied up in that, we can then let go. We can then look around at each other and look around at what God is saying and what he is calling and we can say, whatever you want, we're going to go after it. We're going to do it. We're going to move forward in it because what we want is your glory and I know that in that is my good. And it's God who set this calling out. It's God who spoke this command. It's God who empowered by his spirit. It's God who clarified the direction. And now it's God who sends him out. And we can believe that when he does that here in our life and in this church for his glory, we'll experience good and we can let it go. But we've got to believe that it's God who actually sends us out. It's God who actually calls us out. It's God who actually sets us forward. And when we can do that, we can let go of our own ideas and our own sense of preservation and our own sense of what we've got to hold on to, to maintain. And we can say here, blank check on the table. Redemption Hill, blank check, God. What do you want? My life, Chris's life, Ray's life, your life, our life, whatever you want. You do with it as you see fit. You compel as you see fit. You call as you see fit. Because I know that you've promised to empower with your spirit and that your purposes can never be stopped. Come what may on this earth. And in that is my good. And we can let go. And we can let go. And we can let God lead his mission as we're obedient to his commands and we seek his direction and the shape and calling in each of our lives to be obedient. To be obedient in what he's called us to do. I want to put to death the idea of preservation in this church and in my life and in your life. And as we go through this season leading up to Easter and we study this book in Acts and especially the next couple of weeks, I'm just going to pick up where I stopped. We're just going to keep going because there's more next week. 
As we do that, I want, I want our time together uh, here, and I want your time throughout the week. I want it to be a time when the wheels are not just spinning and they're going nowhere. I don't want that for myself. I don't want that for you. I don't want that for this church. I do not want us to look back on this thing and see that we did all that we could to preserve it and to keep it going, but it never actually went anywhere. I don't want that. And so as we continue this season in Lent and this study, uh, as we fast and as we pray, I want you to just join me and all of us together to pray that in this season, God would put to death in your life whatever he needs to put to death when it comes to this idea of preservation and maintenance. That he would show you whatever it is you're holding back on. That he would show you whatever it is that in your mind and your heart is off limits to him. And that he would encourage you with his character and his goodness and his power and his promise to not only support you and to care for you, but that through obedience to him, he would receive glory and you would achieve. You would achieve your greatest good. That's my, that's my prayer for us. And there's more we'll get into next week. But let this text, Acts 13 and 14, read ahead this week. Let it serve as a tool for examination during this time of prayer and fasting. Look at your life. Look at your priorities. Look at the things that matter to you. Look at the place where God has put you and ask him to show you if you can't see where you can be obedient to his command to make disciples, where you can be obedient to his command to be his witnesses in the place where he's put you. Ask him to show you. Ask him to show you what scares you, what holds you back, what keeps you from being obedient. Ask him to show you and then don't settle with it. Don't be content with it. When he shows it to you, repent of it. Put it to death. I promise he'll give you the power to do so by his spirit. And together as we do this as a people, I feel like his, in his graciousness, he'll, he'll help keep us from this idea of maintenance and, and preservation. Let me pray for us and we'll pick this back up next week. Father, thank you for your word. Um, thank you that it is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path that we don't have to bounce around this life and this world in darkness to ourselves and in darkness to your purposes and your plans. Lord, ask, I ask in the next weeks together as we read and study your scriptures that it illuminate for us where, where we've settled for preservation and where we've settled for maintenance. And I ask that it will illuminate for us in our own souls your purposes for your glory through your gospel and that that would shine bright, that it would shine bright in our souls and that your spirit would empower us to let it all go, to throw ourselves at your feet and say whatever you want, whatever you want for your glory, I know it's for my good, take it and let's go. But I ask that in this you be honored and you be glorified and you be made much of. Amen. Amen. Um, for those of you that are new, it's a habit for